some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of trumpet dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am glad that you are here. Time is the most valuable asset that we all possess and I am grateful that you have chosen to spend a little bit of your time listening to this podcast in whatever situation or setting you may find yourself, be it taking a walk, folding the laundry, driving to work, driving home from work, whatever the case may be. First of all, I would like to share a couple of announcements with you. I am beginning a monthly occurrence, which is a master class on personal branding. Personal branding is something that I have been studying for a number of years. I would say that it's, if, if I were to be really honest, it's, it's something that I've been studying consciously or subconsciously for as long as I can remember. However, I have been studying it consciously for the last eight years since I got into podcasting. And I've learned a thing or two on the topic, and I want to share a little bit of what I've learned with anyone who wants to listen then this masterclass is for you. The first one is going to be on Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. So if you're listening to this podcast in real time, the time that it's released, which is on September 1st, 2023, then there's time to register. To learn more about these masterclasses and personal branding, all you have to do is go to my personal website, jamesdnewcomb.com, and it's going to be very prominently displayed there on the homepage. The time, the date... Oh, by the way, the, the time is 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and it's all live. So it's going to be live and unscripted. Go to jamesdnewcomb.com, and it's very prominently displayed there on the homepage of my website. And also trumpetdynamics.com. It's not as prominently displayed, but it's there. Just scroll to the, towards the bottom of the homepage, and there you'll see it. trumpetdynamics.com or jamesdnewcomb.com. Register for the free personal branding masterclass. Now, I'm going to warn you that I am going to be promoting some of the services that I provide, such as podcast production, email marketing, website building and maintenance, things of that nature. So that is my business, and that's why I'm uh, having these masterclasses so that I can make people aware of myself and the services that I provide. But I do guarantee that there will be a lot of value shared and if all you listen to or watch is the masterclass, I guarantee, my personal guarantee, that you will learn a lot. And if you don't, then I'll give you all of your money back. Haha, <laughs> how's that? Second announcement is I have a Facebook group called Trumpet Dynamics. If you're looking for another Facebook group 
or a way to connect with fellow trumpeters and to get to know me on a more personal level, then I invite you to join the Facebook group. Again, trumpetdynamics.com. You'll see an icon to join the group. Very easy to join, and let's get the discussion going. To introduce our guest on today's episode, Del Lyron. The way that I got to know Del is he was actually teaching at the alma mater of my grandfather, Roy Newcomb, who went to school in Bemidji, Minnesota. My grandfather was born and raised in Hines, Minnesota, tiny town. It, it, it was a very small town to begin with, but that's where my grandfather was raised, and he went to college at Bemidji State University. And so when I saw that Del Lyron was uh, on, the, on the faculty there at Bemidji State, I, I guess I just felt inclined to reach out, and we stayed, you know, loosely connected through social media and whatnot. But we finally connected uh, in person, got to know each other a little bit, and we were able to sit down uh, on his porch in Golden Valley, Minnesota, where he now resides in the Twin Cities. And we had a lovely discussion, and um, I'm really excited to share it with you. So without any further ado, we hear from Del Lyron. Let's get to it. Everything that you say from this point out can will be used against you. Okay, in good to know. Public opinion. I'll try not to be careful. <laughs> Never know what might come out of my mouth. <laughs> That's why I do this. That's why I do this job. <laughs> you probably this is this is your money maker. Actually, you're getting enough people on tape saying crazy things, and you never know what kind of blackmail you could have in your back pocket. There. <laughs> How do you think I paid for the plane tickets? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will introduce us those who are listening. I'm here with Del Lyron, and we're getting over our just seeing each other for the first time in four years jitters yeah in our conversation but things will loosen up over time as they always do in these types of interviews welcome Dell. it's good to sit down and chew the fat and talk about yeah. trumpet and life how the two intersect yeah. occasionally yeah thanks for having me it's my pleasure to do this and i'm honored honestly yeah. nice i'm i that's why i do this show because it's my honor to meet and talk with people like yourself and others We've got jet noise. We're outside. Yeah. We've got birds chirping, bats doing their thing in the cavern of Dell's house here in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Yeah. Always nice to hook up with people in person because I always do all these interviews on Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. And whenever I get to meet someone in person, it's always just a added layer of nuance than conversation that you can't get online. Yeah always better in person that goes for everything we could get into that a bit later if you want yeah to. i mean we 2020 was we the world got in, introduced to zoom if they weren't aware of it mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were 2020 and 2021 yeah what were you doing in 2020 when the pandemic hit let's see when the pandemic hit i was about three months remaining on my sabbatical actually ah. from Bemidji State and I had just turned in my letter of resignation essentially they offered me a early retirement essentially package and I turned in that letter and then about a week later pandemic hit in the states and then everything shut down and 
I was thinking, wow, I, I just quit my job essentially, <laughs> and now what am I going to do? <laughs> so yeah, that it ended up being a really interesting time for me in a lot of ways. I don't know how much do you want me to go into this. I can probably talk for a while. It's your interview, so you okay. go as deep as you want. Okay. So yeah, my contract ended with the university in mid-May, and then I just I was teaching a little bit online through actually I was at a high school that summer and then I remember actually I remember being at a picnic with our kids and their significant others and I even think my mother was there visiting and I got this phone call from a good friend of mine his name's Caleb Chapman and Caleb Caleb is an idea guy and he called me up and said hey I've got this idea and I want you to take it and run with it and he was calling it artist access and he had this vision of essentially being the go-to place online where people could come and book musicians is what it started out at and actually was but he had a vision of even beyond that more than just musicians but so people could book online clinics with people on the artist access roster performances online everything was online obviously at that point and then he wanted it post covid to turn into more of a booking agency where they could bring in these people live and in person but we didn't know how long covid was going to last at that point so we were just concentrating completely on the online part of that and so i took that on and that's mostly what i did during covid that and some online teaching it was pretty much everything that so I the did. artist access was in response to covid yeah ah. yeah it was let's shut down what do we do yep and that was totally caleb's idea because his i don't know how much you know about caleb but his whole thing is, is in salt lake city and he's got you can almost call it a community school in a way except i think it goes beyond that and he's highly successful in this his bands are just truly outstanding bands everything i think from about fourth grade through 12th grade and they win downbeat awards for his jazz bands and that sort of thing his bands meaning the student bands in his yeah. schools yes exactly and then covid hit and he had to shut that all down and so he was looking for a way to do something else and that's how he got this idea huh yeah there's various ways of responding to something like covid yeah a lot of people took the attitude of this is a catastrophe and the world is going to end yeah and for some people the world did end other people saw it as an opportunity to use some of the tools available yeah that were there how can we use it now in, in response to this yeah of course the preference is doing things in person but there's technology available to do it online too yeah exactly and it, it seems to me like the net result of covid is you have a hybrid of the two do it you can do it in person whenever possible but when you can't we've got this as a plan b and that's filtered into just about every profession at exactly. this point yeah i know people who they never would have allowed their people to work outside the home i mean uh, from home but now they've made adjustments yeah and they don't want them to come into the office yeah <laughs> and if they found a way to make it work yeah and universities there was a time at my old university when teaching online was taboo and of course covid all the teaching yeah. is online and now 
I think almost every university does a little bit of online teaching because of that. Huh. Don't you? I think it's just very common these days. I don't do that much teaching. Okay. Yeah. But I do a lot of podcasting. Yeah. And so like, there you go. To meet someone in person for me is a rarity. Yeah. Because mm. it's it's so much it's convenient and the product is good enough. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. This is optimal. But we live in a world of good enough. Yeah. Is good enough. Yeah. <laughs> People want to spend more time with their kids. They don't care about the audio quality of my podcast. So <laughs> we all have our priorities and we have to be we have to be <clears throat> attuned to that and adjust to what people really want. Yeah. How did you get started on trumpet? Let's see. I got started on trumpet really because both my parents played. My dad played trumpet all the way through college and then became more of a choir person and ended up getting his doctorate in choral conducting. Did that for 10 years or so and then quit completely and sold real estate. <laughs> And then my mother also was a trumpet player, both very good too. And so we had a trumpet in the closet, actually a cornet, my mother's old cornet. And probably when I was about six, I asked her to teach me how to play it, which she did. And I played it probably, I'm guessing, until I got bored, which was maybe a week. <laughs> yeah, and then picked it up again in, in fifth grade and, and took off from that point. But an interesting story about that, because what I think really piqued my interest in trumpet was that my mother always told this story about Rafael Mendez. And when she was a senior in high school, she was first chair all-state trumpet in South Dakota. And Rafael Mendez was the guest soloist with the band Ooh. that year. Wow. What year was that? 1958, maybe? Somewhere okay. in there. And this is your mother? My mother, yeah. So as the story goes, because she was a four-year All-Stater, they called her up to the front of the stage with everybody else who was a four-year All-Stater. And I think she was the only trumpet player who had made All-State four years in a row. And Raphael noticed her, and she's about five feet tall and probably cute as a button, and kissed her hand and congratulated her. And she, she told that story for years and years, probably from when I was kindergarten on, when I could understand it. So I'd always heard about this guy and I'd always heard this story and I always thought I need to play trumpet too because that sounds like such a cool thing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then, long story even longer, when I got to Arizona State, I sat down with David Hickman and we talked about dissertation topics and somehow the idea of a biography came up and I floated the idea of a biography of Rafael Mendez and Hickman being a big Mendez fan loved it and so that eventually just turned into my dissertation at that point. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> so, All because you, of that. You wrote, you co-authored a book <clears throat> about yep. Mendez, right? With Jane Hickman. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's David's wife? Ex-wife, yeah. Ex-wife, okay. Yeah. Wow. So it's the influence of Mendez, it, of course, you have this, like myself, I've never met him. I've only heard him. I think he probably, I think he passed before I even started playing trumpet myself in 85 or whenever it started but look at that one personal connection and that's what music is all about yeah. isn't it oh i totally agree it's not about the notes yeah it was that connection that he made with your mom who inspired you yeah and you've done I, you're probably too humble to say this but you've done a lot of great things hmm. in the trumpet community 
Yeah, I'm much too humble to say that. You, you have. <laughs> or to even believe it, honestly. Okay. But, yeah. But, okay, but let's take the contributions that you have made, whether they're great or they're humble, whatever you call them, it's all be, it, it's, can be traced to a kiss on the hand. Right. Yeah, it really can. Of a 17-year-old girl. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it really can. And I preach things like that to my students all the time about how any particular moment in their life could be a life-changing moment or a chance meeting with somebody, how important networking is, all of those things. Because as in, in music, it's a small world. It is. Yeah. And boy, you can meet somebody, make that connection, and who knows where it's going to lead. Honestly, I guess I've had students who take the opportunity to go chat with a guest artist that we used to bring in up in Bemidji. And, and for many of them, that changed their lives in a very positive way. People like Kiku Collins came in and, and performed with our band. And some of the people in that band still keep in touch with Kiku. Sean Jones came up and heard the band and one of my students almost ended up going to study with him. Didn't, but Sean still remembers that kid. Every time I see Sean, he'll say, how's Andy? Ah, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Andy made an impression on Sean too, which is very cool. But yeah, I think it's just so important. More, it's not even just a music thing. It's just a person thing, humanity thing, where making that connection, I think, is so important with people, and especially even more so these days, right? Because, boy, with all the online stuff that we've been talking about, so much of humanity has become through a screen. And I think that person-to-person -person connection, like we're doing right now, just having a conversation, is maybe getting a little bit lost, and it's such an important thing to to have so maybe a bit lost but never forgotten yeah for sure yeah i remember the days when the internet was becoming a thing and people were up in arms about the machines are going to take over yeah we're going to have this is going to be online and we're going to lose our connection with our with humanity but that's not what happened and there's definite concerns about things like social media and that and the concerns about how it triggers certain receptors in the brain and trigger like legit addiction. Yeah. To I don't know all the science behind it, but it's legit. Yeah. But the concerns of we're going to lose our humanity because of the internet proved to be unfounded because we always have that craving for community and just the personal one-to-one -one touch. Yeah. The Rafael Mendez. Yeah. We'll never lose the need for that. Yeah. I sure hope not. <laughs> and I'm with you. I, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I see that. But I see the same concerns about things like AI. Exactly. Here in 23. It's the same concerns that we heard 20 years ago about the internet. Yep. How's it going to change things? Yep. And my answer is we're never going to lose the craving to have a conversation just like this on yeah. the back porch in Minnesota. Yep. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Of course I'm right. Yeah. I'm the host. <laughs> you can't be wrong. Of course. <laughs> and if but you are, you'll edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> edit it out. Take that comment, put it in chat GPT and expound it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Now we're talking. <laughs> Make me even more of an asshole than I am. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, so let's talk about when does trumpet become more than something that you do hmm. 
to the thing that you do? Let's see. Thinking back a little bit, trumpet was always my main activity, although I played a lot of golf. I was on the golf team in high school. and That's what I did all summer, every day. I never touched the trumpet in the summer until after my senior year of high school. I would never say that to my students these days, but it's the truth. I was playing golf. So I would say I really got serious about it when I got to college. I went to South Dakota State and studied with my, my all-time favorite person, which was John Colson, C-O-L-S-O-N. And Mr. Colson, I still call him Mr. Colson. He passed away about a year and a half ago. And he was just a great guy. He's like my second father. He was one of those people that you're so thankful you had the opportunity to know and study with and learn from more than just trumpet, but life also. Just a great guy. So he, he was next to my parents, my mother in particular. He was the person who really, I think, molded me into a musician more than just somebody who picked up the trumpet once in a while and fiddled around on it. And he knew David Hickman and actually brought Hickman up for a performance and Hickman did a clinic and I played the Kenan Sonata for him. He apparently liked it and he invited me to his Keystone Brass Institute that summer. And he gave me, an, I'm pretty sure it was a $50 scholarship <laughs> to go to the Keystone Brass Institute. And back at, in those days, I think it cost about $1,000 to go with tuition, room and board and probably travel. So I took out, I went to the bank and took out a loan for the rest of it, just a bank loan. And because I really wanted to do it. I just thought that I've been invited by this guy that's somebody I idolize and he's invited me out. I thought I have to do this. So I took out a loan and that's how I paid my way out to Keystone and spent, I think it was two weeks out there in Keystone. And, and where is Keystone? Colorado. Colorado. Yeah up in the mountains of Colorado. Beautiful Was setting. Hickman in Arizona at this point? Yeah, he was, yeah. In fact, I, probably most of the people listening to this won't know what the Keystone Brass Institute was. Tell us about it. Yeah, man, this was a David Hickman idea, as far as I know, and he definitely was the driving force behind it. But what he did is he decided that he wanted to host a camp like a Aspen, except make it a two-week thing just for brass, and have a host brass ensemble made up of the very best players that he could find. And then invite students to come out and have a chance to study with these players, get coached by them in some sort of a chamber setting, and also hear them do clinics and master classes, not just on their particular instrument, but also on the business of music and how to audition for a graduate school. And man, I went to that thing and it was so eye-opening coming from Brookings, South Dakota, a small town of about 13,000 people at that point. And SDSU, same thing, was in my hometown, small school. And I went out there and heard, I think Tony DiLorenzo was playing, Joe Foley, I remember playing the Artunian. Who else was out there? I'll think of some other names here in a bit, but Fantastic Player is all about my age. And I was going, holy cow, I got a long way to go. <laughs> and I got to know Hickman a little better, and that's what resulted in me going to grad school there to study with him. So again, it's one of those connection things where my teacher knew another teacher, brought him in for a clinic. I played with him, played for him, 
went to this thing he was hosting and ended up going to study with him. And studying with Hickman was life-changing too for me. But I can get into that in a minute. Keystone Brass Institute, I'm gonna let this plane go over it. Keystone Brass Institute, the trumpet section, was David Hickman, Tony Plogue, Alan Dean, and Ray Mace. That was the trumpet section. Wow. Dan Parentoni on tuba. Sorry, what is the trumpet section? Like the teachers or? Um, in the brass group? ensemble, because they put together a professional brass ensemble. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. I forgot to mention that. And you could go in and listen to them rehearse, and I remember sitting in the front row listening to this group. On horn, it was like Gail Williams. Who else played horn in there? Tom Bacon. I don't know, just like all the top players from that time period. And they put together concerts that were just mind-blowing to me. I had never heard anything like it. Not Do you remember close. what they played? Oh, I know they, they did some of Tony Plogue's music. I, I can remember hearing them do Akata and Fugue, for sure. A lot of stuff they played are on Summit Brass CDs. You can find it probably on YouTube these days, I would assume. They did a Vizzuti, or I think it was a piece that was written for Vizzuti, a concerto. Was it by Plogue or by Vizzuti? I'd have to look, but I remember, I think I heard either Vizzuti or Hickman play that. And wow, it's just another one of those things where you just come out of there going, man, that's unbelievable stuff. <laughs> so anyway, that, that was the Keystone Brass Institute. Yeah. And that, the interesting thing about that, sorry, one more thing, is it morphed into the Rafael Mendez Brass Institute. So the Rafael Mendez <coughs> Brass Institute that is now came from the Keystone Brass Institute back in the mid-80s. Yeah. And the Mendez Institute is in Arizona? Was in Arizona. Now it's up in Colorado. I think oh. the University of Denver hosts it. Really? Yeah. So the Institute is just a two-week like festival Yeah, it's, every it's summer? Yeah, it's almost what I just described for Keystone Brass Institute, oh, okay. except different name. Oh, yeah, okay. it's the same concept. Yeah. I always heard the word Rafael Mendez Institute. I thought of like a, what do you call this? Think tank. The oh, Rafael really? Mendez think yeah. tank where you come up and think of ideas for how to play your scales better. How to double tongue better. <laughs> but it turns out it's a two-week festival in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, okay. it is. <laughs> what made John Colson so special? He just was such a special person because he was so understated, for one thing. And caring, definitely. You could go into a lesson with him, and I know all his former students, if they ever hear this, would completely agree. You could go into a lesson for him, you'd never be nervous. And if you were, he would sense it and maybe just talk to you a little bit and get you to calm down, whatever. He just was the epitome of a gentleman, I think. Hardly ever played in lessons. Still played a little, and when he did, he sounded fantastic. Yeah, what made him special was just his personality, just that very kind, caring, and gentle personality, I think. You just don't, you don't get that a lot these days from people. People are a little bit hardened and maybe a little more aggressive in some cases, I think, but the very quiet, gentlemanly personality is, I think, a rarity these days. I'm trying to think of some people that might exemplify that. These days, I guess I should, probably shouldn't name <laughs> people that way. One to me that I think is a lot like that is Alan Dean, actually. Yeah. 
and Alan grew up in Iowa and actually I think played with John Colson and a group way back in the teens or something but yeah Alan Dean's another one of those people that more people should pattern themselves after I think yeah in my experience the great players are the most down-to-earth yeah humble very true approachable yep they may not have all the time in the world for you yeah but if you get their time nicest people Alan Vizzuti that who I bet came to mind too met many times not many times but I've come across a couple of times probably the best player you'll ever hear yeah in person humble as can be as just as gentle as you can imagine yeah and Sean Jones I haven't met personally but great players yeah and they'll never admit that but we can call them that and would not be lying yeah but they are just the salt of the earth yeah Sean is one of those people he's exactly that way but he's a little more effervescent, I think, in his personality. But if you have but time, not abrasive, but not effective. not at all, yeah. not ever. He's one yeah. of those people that, even if you don't know him that well, he'll give you a big hug and just make you feel like you're his best friend. Yeah, people like that, and they are. It's all the A-list musicians are like yeah. that. They yeah. are. Yeah, and they don't. Ha- they don't always have gobs of time to do interviews like this or yeah, hang out for a beer. But if you can get five minutes with them, you remember it for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah, very true. You mentioned David Hickman, and I interviewed him two years ago. Huh, okay. And he had a similar experience about his teacher in high school. Okay. And I don't remember the teacher's name, but I remember he grew up in Kimball, Nebraska. Yeah. And he spoke the world of his teacher and just this tiny little town totally obscure band director produced one of the best we've ever known. Yeah. And and I'm not going to put you in the category of David Hickman, but Thank I can see the comparison between <laughs> John Colson having that impact on yourself and your colleagues in school. And it seems to me like this conversation keeps going back to this connection. Yeah. The Rafael Mendez kissing your mom's hand. Yeah. And it led to you making it your career. Yeah. Yes. Connections. Yes. It's always connections. It always is. I don't know. I, while you're talking, I'm thinking of other, other connection type stories for myself. And one is, I, this one's fairly short. ITG hosted the ITG conference. I think it was 1996 in Sweden, in Gothenburg, Sweden. And I went to that conference really not knowing very many people. Knew Joyce Davis, who also I have to mention was a huge positive impact on me and just had, she opened so many doors for me. And one of them was the opportunity to go to that conference in Sweden. And I can remember sitting at breakfast, pretty sure with my wife, Betsy, and I think we were just the two of us just having a nice breakfast. And pretty soon up walked Bengt Eklund, who was the conference host. And he was the trumpet teacher at University of Göteborg in Gothenburg, Sweden. And he sat down and had breakfast with us. I don't, I can't for the life of me imagine he even knew who I was. He just picked some random seat and thought that couple looks somewhat friendly. I guess maybe I'll join them for breakfast. And he, we had such a great conversation. And Banked is another man, was, because he passed away many years ago. But he was another one of those people, like a John Colson, 
the consummate gentleman and also fantastic musician who, anyway, we connected that day at breakfast and he ended up getting me invited to a conference that Ed Tarr hosted in Germany where I did some Mendes stuff and I think I performed with Vinnie DiMartino and, and Jim Thompson on that conference. We did a Mendes trio and I hope I played third trumpet. I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I was going to play first with those guys. But that was just another thing where we, we had breakfast and made a connection and it resulted in a couple other things for me that that I never in my lifetime would have expected. Also going to Ukraine, that was the first one, is Bank got me invited to this conference in Ukraine. So I spent 11 days in Kiev. Okay, so tell us where you are in your life and career. That would, this Ki is going on. Kiev was 1998. Okay, so you're like out of college. Yeah, I was Were in my- Were you teaching my, at Bemidji at that time? No, I was teaching in Louisiana at oh. that point. Okay. Finishing, I think, my sixth year there, and it was my last year there at University of Louisiana Lafayette. At the time, it was University of Southwestern Louisiana, but okay. they changed names. And anyway, Joyce Davis and Banked, I'm, I'm pretty sure were the two people that got me invited to that conference, which again was an amazing one. Maury Frank was there. Nicholas Eklund, which is Banks' son, was there. Who else? Jim Thompson, Vinnie DiMartino. Timothy Dokschitzer was there. I got to meet him very briefly. Yeah, just great people. Antony Selenanin, I hope I'm saying that correctly, from Russia, was there. Some other Russian trumpet players too. I'm completely blanking on names right now, which irritates me. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it was that one in Kiev. And then I got to go to Germany, the one hosted by Ed Tarr. And these were such fantastic opportunities for somebody who, at that time, I think I was pretty young. I was, how old was I? 30? I was about 30. Yeah. Yeah, two great moments for me. 1998 is also when I got the job in Bemidji and we moved up to Minnesota at that point. So, This is like the interview of obscure schools. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> South Dakota State to Bemidji State. Uh -huh. People listening to this, because I, I know it, my grandfather was from Bemidji. Really? He was from a little town called Hines. Yeah? You may have heard of it. I've heard of it. Can't he, place it, but it's right up there, it's, isn't it? What's the highway that goes north from Bemidji. 71, it's gotta be. It's right on 71. On the way to Black Duck? It's right in between Bemidji and Black Duck. Yeah, okay. So Black Duck is still a town. Yeah. Heinz is no longer a thing. Okay. It's got a sign that says Heinz, welcome, like population six. Yeah. It's not like a actual city. It's just a remnant, I guess, of what was once a town. There might be a pizza place there, if I Maybe. remember correctly. Maybe. Yeah, but no town. No. Yeah. But uh, that's where he's from. Wow. My grandfather is still alive up in Anoka, huh. which is just up the road from here. Yep. But that's where he's from. So that's how I know Bemidji. He went yeah. to Bemidji State. Did he? Wow. Back in the 40s? Everybody has a Bemidji connection somehow, <laughs> it seems. Yes. It's it crazy. Every I could be sitting on a plane... <clears throat> And chat, chat with the person next to me, who I've obviously never met, and I can say, back in the day when I taught at Bemidji State, they would say, I went to Bemidji Music Camp in 1972. 
And we had John Painter as our guest conductor. It's just like everywhere I went, it seemed, somebody had a connection up there. Everybody in their photo album has them at the Paul Bunyan statue. Yeah, very true. Either there or in Brainerd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I was in the military, I did a some sort of ceremony. And it was a general officer. And his bio said he went to Bemidji State. Wow. Huh. So these obscure schools. Yeah. They produce people who actually achieve something in life. Yeah. yeah. So you don't have to go to these big name schools to yeah. become something. You don't have to. It's what you it's what you make out of wherever you are. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that at these small schools you have really great teachers. Mm -hmm. Diamonds in the rough, for lack of a better term. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. A lot of times a lot of times that's somebody's first job out of college at a small school and I think a lot of times people get to these small schools and like it. I did. That's what happened to me. Although I guess my first job was a school of maybe 20,000, I can't remember, Louisiana. And I don't know, we wanted to get closer to family. That's why we moved up to Bemidji. And it was a much smaller school, much smaller program. But I enjoyed my time there and stayed. So I have a feeling that happens a lot where you get really good people that get into a situation that's just comfortable and they stay. Yes, I've heard that story. Just it, either just talking to people just offline or doing these kind of interviews. They, they see no reason to leave. Yeah. It seems like the grass is greener at Juilliard. Yeah. But it's not necessarily. It's not that it's not a desirable place, but they only have so many positions. Yeah. Not everybody can work at Arizona State. Yeah. Or teach at Arizona State. Yep. That's what you make of it. Well, there's something to be said for raising your kids in a smaller town, I think. Uh, yeah, just having a stronger sense of community, maybe, in a smaller town. Yeah. Yeah. But then everybody knows all your secrets. They sure do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Can't go anywhere without somebody saying, hey, I noticed you tripped on that stair step. Were you drinking a little too much that night? <laughs> No, I wasn't. I just tripped on my shoelace. <laughs> then rumors spread. <laughs> yeah. So what's what was like? What was life like in Bemidji? Because I, I think I got to know you probably ten years ago, maybe before then, and we were like, quote, friends on Facebook. You know mm -hmm. how that goes. Yeah. But I would see your posts every now and then. But you're heavily involved in a lot of activities down here. I think you were like quasi-hosted an ITG conference yeah. from Bemidji, yeah. which I thought was quite a feat. What was that like? <laughs> it, yeah, it was interesting to do that. What year was that? That was 2013. And Steve Wright, who lives here in the cities, he and I hosted it, co-hosted. And so that was extremely helpful, honestly, having Steve here in the cities. Anything that kind of just needed to be done locally, Steve was able to take care of that, including lining up the players for a lot of the concerts we had. Steve knew everybody here, so that made that easy. If I had to do that, I, it, it would have been very difficult for me. The stuff I took care of from Bemidji were more of the business sides of things and bringing in, getting all the guest artists, not all of them, but a good portion of them. I was the contact and arranged all the contracts and flights and hotels and all of that kind of stuff yeah what's the process of 
hosting an ITG conference. The process has changed now. The organization hosts their own conferences now. We're an anomaly in a way because I think we were about the second or third to the last people to ever host it as individuals. And technically it was hosted by Bemidji State at the time and I was the person running it. Uh, so what was it like? It was two and a half years of almost full-time work over and above my full-time job. Yeah. Two and a half years. Yeah. Steve and I talked. This was Steve's idea. I'm going to blame him for it. <laughs> we were up in Banff at the ITG conference, and Steve and I ran into each other, and he came walking up with this shitty grin on his face and said, Dell, you and what I should host for the next one of years? these. Yeah. <laughs> you got plans for two years? <laughs> yeah, that was exactly it. Why haven't we hosted one of these in Minneapolis? I said, I don't know, Steve. I don't live in Minneapolis. And he said, I do. Let's host it. <laughs> so I said, sure, let's do it. It's a naive response, probably. But we put together a proposal. That's how it worked at the time. We had to put together a proposal, which had to include at least a ballpark figure of finances, maybe some key guest artists you wanted to bring in, facilities you planned to use, hotel that you planned to use. So you had that at least a basic outline of how you wanted it to run. And then you submit that to the ITG board, and if they approve it, it's almost your ball to run with, in a way, at that point. Obviously, they oversaw it, and if you had questions, you could approach them. You could approach them for seed money if you wanted to, but we chose not to. Because I think if you used their seed money, they took a certain percentage of the profits also. And... If you don't use their seed money, you get to keep any profits that you might be lucky enough to make, which that's what we chose to do, and we were able to keep all the profits. And they ended up going into an account up at Bemidji State for myself to use for professional development or to take students on trips to conferences. I could use them a little bit for equipment purchases and that kind of thing. Yeah. But when I left, the fund stayed there. At the school. Because yeah. they, technically the school hosted it. Technically, yeah. Did, did the school pay you for your efforts? No. no. Okay. But I got to use all that money for quite a few years. Okay. And that was my the benefit for me. While you were there, it was spent at your discretion? Yes. More or less? Almost 100%. Okay. Yeah. Huh. So I took students to the National Trumpet Competition. I took students to the GEN Conference, Jazz Education Network. Took some students to the ITG conference. Actually, just as a reward for, there were two students in particular that worked really hard at the conference, and I took them to New York City just on a vacation. And we went to some, I don't remember what we saw, but some jazz stuff and a couple of shows, and just as a reward for them helping me out so much. So you must have done well. We did very well. Good. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of the reason the organization wanted to start hosting, is okay. because they saw... And it wasn't just ours that did really well. It was a couple others also that did well. And I think the organization was seeing these profits that were being made and thought we should be getting that. I can't blame them, honestly. You're using their name? Yeah. And their status? Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. So ever since, I think, when was the last one that was <clears throat> personnel hosted? Probably 2016? 16, 17, somewhere in there. There's one in Hershey, Pennsylvania, yeah. Bill Stolman. 
I think hosted that. And I can't remember what year, what was after that one, but one of those I think was the last one. I went to the one in 16 in Anaheim. Yeah. And then 17 in Hershey. Yeah, okay. And then after that, I was busy with all kinds of stuff. I yeah. just haven't had a chance to go since then. Yeah. So where did we meet the first time face-to-face? -face? You and I met, I was on tour with the field band. I remember this. Yeah. The U.S. Army field band. Because I wasn't a member of the band, but I they needed somebody for for their tour. And they called the commanding officer down at Fort Bragg and said, can you send up a trumpet player? And he recommended me. I'm not sure he is glad that he did that, but <laughs> for a number of reasons, but that's what happened. Yeah. And that's how you and I met. We had a concert in Bemidji. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay. And my uncle has a, in fact, we're going up there this coming weekend. He still has a cabin up there. He's passed away, but his family purchased his property and renovated his his cabin and it's a beautiful place. Wow. So we're going up there this weekend. Which lake? Gull Lake. Okay. Do you recognize that? G-U, yeah. Gull Lake? Yeah, that, isn't that more Brainerd area? No, I, uh, there, there are two Gull Lakes. Really? And the, uh, there's one near Brainerd, which is very big. Okay, yeah. And then this one is, do you know the town Ten Strike? Yes, also up by Black Duck. Yes. Yeah, okay. Huh. Yeah. Oh, I bet it'll be beautiful up there. Bring bug spray. Yes. <laughs> Bugs are terrible up there, I think, this year. Yeah, but it's, the property is right on the lake. He bought it nice. in the 1940s when it, you can imagine what the property values were then. Yeah. He got 20 acres. Wow. Which is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful lake, too. It's, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Huh. You're making me miss it. <laughs> All this talk about it, yeah. So why'd you move down here? Let's see. That's a very long story, and I'll make it the short version, yeah. The short version is, when I left there, my last year I was actually on sabbatical at Bemidji, and we already owned a condo here. Our daughter was actually living in it, renting from us. And we were pretty sure that we wanted to move here because we were coming down here all the time, at least two times a month at least, for concerts, sporting events, seeing our kids, whatever. So it was feeling more and more when we owned that condo, like we were just heading this direction anyway. And when I was on sabbatical, we actually moved down here. We sold our house up in Bemidji and moved down here and lived in the condo. And I wasn't sure if I was going to go back because technically on a sabbatical, you have to go back for one year. And I just thought if I do that, I'll drive back and just stay in a hotel or something and do that for a year and then probably be done. And as it worked out with the whole retirement thing, they didn't make me come back. I got to, normally if you don't go back, you have to return your sabbatical money. They let me keep the money they paid me on sabbatical. And so I said, goodbye. Wow, <laughs> that worked out. It worked out perfectly. And we already had a place to live. We had already sold our house. We lived in the condo during the beginning of COVID. And then in the middle of COVID is when we bought our house. Which yeah. is a beautiful house. Thank you. It's wonderful. So you're like one of the musicians that's actually done something with themselves. <laughs> we were talking about we were talking about this before we hit record on this. We were just yeah. walking through your house and like you're you, you said that your daughter is a very creative 
Yeah. I, I don't know the full story, and I'm not trying to say anything I shouldn't say, but yeah. you said words along the lines of it was a challenge for her to find her her calling in life or yeah. how to channel that creative energy into something that actually makes money. Yeah. Because that's a big challenge for creatives. It is. it is. Because we feel like this is my calling in life. This is what I have to do. Yeah. But it doesn't always relate. It doesn't always translate into profits. No, it doesn't. Like making a living. Yeah. And then you take a job that you think that you have to take a job that that seems like drudgery. But, and I'm a living example of this because I have had my struggles too finding a way to use creative energy to make money but i found a way to do it thankfully yeah Yeah. podcasting is a part of it but it's a big it's a bigger picture if all i did was podcasts i'd be working at a hotel somewhere yeah on the oceanfront of virginia beach yeah but i have found a way thank god and i say this in all humility to take the creative energy that i was given and find a way to mix a buck with it yeah. Be it in writing or editing other people's shows, whatever the case may be, it can be done. Yes. And uh, I'm not saying this so I can toot my own horn, but I just want to give some encouragement to people out there who may be wondering what in the world am I supposed to do with, with this? Why am I going to work on this job doing DoorDash forever? No, you'll find your way eventually. You just have to be a little creative yep. with how to channel that creative energy. Yep. Find a need. <clears throat> And, uh, and go to town. Exactly. Yeah. So Schools don't really teach that, and really they, they should. Maybe more, definitely college, maybe even high school curriculums should talk about how to use your own creativity to make a living, or the, just the business side of life. Teach you know? the basics of business. Yeah. Because it's not drudgery. It's yeah. actually really fun. Yeah. When you use your creative energy to make a business. Yep. That's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. The most profitable businesses are outside of the huge Wall Street scheme, which we can't really get into, but the really successful businesses are the most fun to operate because they serve a legitimate need. Yeah. Going back to that element that we talked about, which is community. Yeah. The ones that can tap into that craving for community that we have, those are the ones that make it. Right. Absolutely. And the ones that focus on money, they fizzle out. Yeah. They burn out. Yep. Because it's not about the money. It's not. Musicians are notoriously terrible in handling finances, too, and which doesn't help, obviously. So, I don't know. Yeah. We could get into the whole curriculum with music schools, too, (laughs) because it would be an interesting topic, I think, to talk about traditional conservatory-based music curriculums versus what we need in modern society. I'm really very much a pro-change in music curriculums. I think the traditional curriculum that's taught at probably most schools these days where you do two years of music theory and a couple semesters of music history and take your piano and all that stuff's important. But I think in addition to that, you need to have some training of musicians on you know, how to manage your business and what kind of music to play so that you can actually get gigs. I've heard so many like of the top performers say, why aren't students being taught how to play 25 or 6 to 4? Or all the Earth, Wind & Fire tunes. They need to be coming out of school knowing those tunes so they can go sit in with a wedding band because that's what's making money these days. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to make a lot of money playing in a brass quintet. 
unless you're the Canadian brass or something like that. Wedding bands, though, you can do well. You can do well. Yeah. There are a lot of bands here in the cities that do pretty well that play that type of music, not necessarily wedding band music, funk bands and that kind of thing. That write their own original material, and they do really well. So if you were starting a music conservatory, what would the curriculum look like? Oh, boy. You'd have to have the theory. But I might teach theory differently. I don't know that I would concentrate a lot on four-part writing and counterpoint and that sort of thing. Maybe touch on it a little bit, but I think I'd spend a lot of time on arranging, maybe relate music theory to more modern music. People talk about doing that with the Beatles a lot, but that's not even modern anymore. (laughs) (laughs) The Beatles are how old? 50, going on 60 years? Yeah. Find some current musicians that are very creative with their writing and study their music. I don't know, Snarky Puppy comes to mind for some reason, but I'm sure there are tons of other groups. Ambrose Akinmusery. I don't know. Study his what? Akinmusery. I hope I'm saying it correctly. He's a jazz trumpet player and he's really different. He's just not a typical jazz player, in my opinion, but fantastic. Study the harmonies that these people are using and then relate that to your curriculum in music school. Because I think students can relate to that a little better and probably would latch on to that a little better and enjoy it and probably study it a little bit more. And and if they're enjoying what they're studying, they're going to do better at it and learn more from it, I think. They can't relate to Bach. Not to say that Bach's not important. I'm not saying that because I think you need to have some of that in there too. But maybe a good mix. I've been doing these interviews for at least two days, so I can understand where someone is speaking like I can read between the lines. Yeah. You feel like that schools could be doing a little bit better job providing a more motivating environment for their students. Oh, 100%. Okay. And the schools that are doing that are, if not already, taken off. Give me examples of schools that are doing a good job with this. I'm not getting this firsthand, I'm getting a secondhand, but I hear Scott Belk at University of Cincinnati. I think he's doing great work. I gotta throw out a shout out to Jeff Coffin. He's down at Vanderbilt. I know he teaches his students saxophone fundamentals, but I know he also teaches them about life on the road and how to make it as a touring musician and that sort of thing. And things like that I think are important. How to get a gig. Other schools. Schools are teachers who are kind of figured things out. Yeah. I may have to get back to you on that because I... Sure. Yeah, I'll get back to you on that. Okay. i got to think about that a little bit. No problem. Yeah. Maybe we could do, like, via Zoom, we could do a very a follow short follow-up. Just splice it onto the yeah. thing. Why not? Sure. It'd be fine it works. With me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Partially because I want to make sure I say people's names correctly. Yes, that's important. (laughs) It is important. It is. Because this is a small town we live in. Yeah. This little pond called Trumpet. Yeah, no doubt. One small misstep. Uh Uh-huh. I've been hearing about it for years. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. For more captivating episodes and exclusive content, Visit our official website at trumpetdynamics.com. You can dive deeper into the interviews, 
discover additional resources, and connect with your fellow trumpeters. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform and even leave a rating and review. It really helps with the visibility of the show. Until we meet again, may your fingers be fluid, your breath unimpeded, and your chops ever fresh. Play hard. <laughs>